Well, good morning, church. It is 11.59, so it is morning for one more minute. A couple quick announcements about next Sabbath before we begin. Um, And of course, I selfishly have to bring up the youth, but uh, there are several youth who will be speaking for adult Sabbath school next Sabbath. So if you'd like to hear some personal accounts of that mission trip, please feel free to come at 9.45 in the morning. Second of all, next Sabbath, we will be beginning a new sermon series on this book, Prayer, by Timothy Keller, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Now, quick confession. We're all friends here. I haven't bought it yet. But I will this week, and I hope many of you do as well. Maybe we'll run into you at Barnes & Noble. So plan on getting this book. Start reading and studying as we prepare for an eight-week sermon series beginning next Sabbath. Well, six years ago, two British Harvard Business School students had an idea. Numbers showed that 500,000 people completed marathons annually. And 1.4 million people completed half marathons each year. And marathons are great. But to some, marathons are kind of boring. And so they thought, what if we made a fun marathon with unique obstacles? Half the distance, but with obstacles that are hard, different, and require a little bit more than just endurance to get through. And so, Will Dean and Guy Livingston scheduled an event called the Tough Mudder. They spent $300 on a website, $20 on a Facebook ad, and let the word spread. And wouldn't you know it, within a few short months, 5,000 people signed up for it. And now, six years later, there have been over 200 Tough Mudder events and 2.5 million participants. And if you would like to become one of them, here are some of those fun obstacles you'll get to enjoy. There is the Berlin Wall, an 8 to 12 foot wall you have to scale. There is the Funky Monkey, set of incline and decline monkey bars placed over a pit of ice cold water. Oh, and the bars are slicked with a mixture of butter and mud. There is the electric eel, a pit, again, of cold water or mud with dangling electric shocks right above you. (laughs) And my personal favorite, fire in the hole, where you scale a net, go down a nearly vertical water slide, through a five-foot wall of fire, and into a pit of mud. So, who here today would like to register for a Tough Mudder? The deacons have clipboards that they'll be passing around. Just put your name. I'm kind of curious. Has anybody here actually done one of these before? Anybody? A little higher, please, so we know who is crazy in our church. Thank you. Good. Yeah. Um, The question became, why is it that there would be such a demand for this? Why did it grow in popularity so quickly? Why did nearly one million people last year alone spend between one and two hundred dollars to do these psychotic things? Nothing better to do with their money. Better to do with their money? Well, I might have a better answer. 
<laughs> and that is the Tough Mudder Pledge. You see, all of these guys, they call them mutters, they all take a pledge. They agree to live by the code that, number one, this is not a race, but a challenge to finish. Second of all, that teamwork and camaraderie is more important than your personal course time. And finally, they all agree that they will help out their fellow mutters along the way. So, whether you know the person or not, if you see them in the mud pit with you, you're going to help them finish. If they're trying to climb that Berlin Wall, you will pull them up. If they want to quit, it is your personal job to not let them. Because it is understood that this is challenging for everybody. And for some reason, people are willing to spend money to experience this kind of unconditional camaraderie. <coughs> now, can anybody else recognize the parallel between a tough mutter and this journey of faith? Have you ever been going along in your walk with Jesus and come to a wall? Or have you, slip, have you ever slipped and fallen into a total mess? Have you ever been completely shocked? or maybe gone through some fire. But there's an important difference you see between that event and our race here. And that is that for them, they have a clear finish line coming within two or three hours. Or if it was me, about eight hours. But there's a finish line coming. For us, there is none in sight. And so what often ends up happening is we each run our tough mutters alone. And while you're in the mud pit, I'm over here with my own obstacle. And we each have to make sure and act as if everything's okay. We're not having a hard time at all to save face. But that is not the church that Jesus came to establish. We may want it to seem as if our walk of faith is always smooth sailing. But do not let the nice clothes and the happy Sabbaths fool you. It's not always smooth sailing. In fact... I would go so far as to say that much like a group traversing the mucky pits of a tough mutter, that we here are not bonded by our collective strength as people. We are bonded by our collective weakness and therefore our mutual need for a savior. The Apostle Paul is someone you are likely familiar with. His resume looks a little something like this. Uh, world's greatest missionary, accomplished biblical scholar and author, uh, successful church planter, recipient of one of Jesus' first post-resurrection appearances. Great resume. Which makes it all the more peculiar that in his first letter to his good friend Timothy, he writes this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, why would Paul say such a thing? Because of his past? Certainly. But maybe Paul understood that whether you are the greatest missionary in the world or a brand new 
convert. To know the gospel is to know that God does not desire perfection, but the recognition of our imperfection and therefore our desperate need for him. I heard once of a student at Yale University who approached the school chaplain with fire in his eyes, said in a loud voice, sir, religion is a crutch. The man looked back at him and said, I completely agree, before adding, but who here is not limping? Paul knew that even with his wonderful resume and all that he was accomplishing, he was limping. He by no means was strong on his own. Now, an important note to that. That is not to say that the goal of Christianity is guilt. You see, Paul was not guilt-ridden because guilt focuses on self. And Paul's focus was not on Paul. Paul's focus was on Jesus. He continues in the passage, verse 16, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And it reminds me of another passage of Paul when he said, Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? But then again, his focus is not on himself. He says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, church, we are to know that we are broken sinners, but we are to celebrate what Jesus has done about it. And that is the reason we should be smiling in church. In 1934, businessman Bill was wallowing in the wake of the Great Depression. You see, Bill was a failed stockbroker, and he often turned towards alcohol for comfort rather than his family. He failed out of law school because he was too drunk to pick up his diploma, and now spent most of his days checking in and out of hospital drying out facilities. Well, one day, Bill was in the hospital, and he had a good friend named Ebby come and visit him. Ebby, too, was an alcoholic. But he shared with him that he had joined an Oxford Christian group and now had not had a drink in several weeks. He said the reason was a newfound faith in God, something that Bill had no interest in. Well, Bill went on another drinking binge, wound up back in the hospital, and it was there that he had a conversion experience saw a bright light, felt a peace come over him, decided, okay, I'll give the Oxford Christian group a shot. And sure enough, he did not drink for five straight months. But then there was another failed business deal. And this time the temptation to fall back and drink was nearly unbearable. And businessman Bill knew the only way he could overcome it was to get in contact with another alcoholic. And so he began searching through the church directory He was eventually given the phone number of a man named Dr. Bob Smith. Not Soderblom, Dr. Bob Smith. (laughs) Dr. Bob was a once legendary physician who had nearly lost his practice due to his addiction. And businessman Bill and Dr. Bob began a quick friendship, began sharing their mutual embarrassing stories of times that they were drunk, began talking about their experiences with the Oxford Christian group, And so then they decided that they would like to start a group of their own. 
began meeting in living rooms together. They didn't know who to gather. And so businessman Bill said, Dr. Bob, do you know any of the drunks in our town? Dr. Bob said, yeah, I know them all. And so they made a few calls, they met together, and by 1937, they counted 40 people. They helped achieve sobriety. Two years later, they reached 100 people, including their first female alcoholic. Now, they decided we should compile these success stories into a book. But they wanted, of course, to protect the identity of these addicts, and so they called the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that book, they included a 12-step program they had developed that they believed helped people achieve sobriety, and it centered on admitting you are powerless over your addiction and that you are dependent upon help from a higher power. Well, they started to run into trouble, you see, because the Oxford Christian group preached what they called the four absolutes. They required their members to practice these absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. Businessman Bill did not like that concept, you see. He said, that is too perfectionistic. And it only feeds into the alcoholic's tendency for all or nothing. He said, what works better, in my experience, is an attitude of helplessness and surrender. An attitude of accepting your perpetual state of imperfection and therefore your deep reliance upon grace. And so he and Dr. Bob decided it was time to break away start their own group. And they decided to use the same name as their book and call it Alcoholics Anonymous. And do you know what happened? The perfectionist-based group shriveled up and withered away within a few years. But the grace-based group grew and grew until today there are currently about 2 million people in this program meeting in 55,000 groups regularly across the world. Can you believe that? Two million people receiving hope for sobriety through this grace-based program. And so like with the Tough Mudder, the question has been asked, why has this been so successful? And I think it comes down to three primary reasons. The first is AA's commitment to radical honesty. You see, many times an alcoholic can smell deception from a mile away, and so they are forced to be brutally honest with each other. While we can kind of get through life faking it sometimes, you know, hey, how's it going? Oh, fine, fine. Hey, do, do you need help? Help? No, no, definitely not. I'm put together. I've got my suit on. Clearly, it's all going okay. That doesn't fly with AA. Honesty is mandatory. The second reason is their commitment to radical equality. AA insists that all members, regardless of status or background, are placed on an even level, which is why they only allow the use of first names. To them, also, a three-month alcoholic is just as much an alcoholic as a 30-year alcoholic. They're both just alcoholics. There's no need to rank them in any way. Additionally, the present tense is always used for everyone. So if someone hasn't had a drink for 10 years, they are not suddenly a former alcoholic. They're still an alcoholic, just as much as the friend sitting next to them who has finally made it to 10 days without a drink. We all fall short, and we are all equally in need. Finally, they are committed to radical dependence. First, to each other. Any member of AA knows that if they are tempted to drink at 4 o'clock in the morning, 
All they have to do is call a fellow member and they will come to their aid right away. They take accountability seriously. An AA member is quoted as saying, if I walked into a meeting and announced, I just robbed a bank, they would look at him and say, well, are you going to take a drink? Another man, a Christian named George, who has been sober for over 20 years, said this. He said, if someone shows up late in church, there may be some who turn and look at them with a scowl or with a smile of satisfaction, knowing the latecomer isn't quite as put together as they are. In AA, if a person shows up late, the meeting comes to a halt, and everyone jumps up to greet the latecomer, aware that the tardiness may be a sign that the addict almost didn't make it. When I show up late, it proves that my desperate need for them won out over my desperate need for alcohol. Ernest Kurtz, the historian of Alcoholics Anonymous, said this, what unites alcoholics, what makes it possible for one alcoholic to learn from another is that the foundation that they share is not a strength, but a weakness. Each knows what he or she cannot do. Sounds a little bit like Paul, doesn't it? Who considered himself the worst of sinners, but was saved by somebody greater than himself. Which leads to the other area of AA's radical dependence, which is dependence on a higher power. When businessman Bill created the program, program, he insisted at skipping step 11, which calls to improve conscious contact with God through prayer and meditation, was the worst mistake a member could make. He went on to say, during the past 12 months, we have had quite a number who felt that the fellowship, the helpful attitude toward others, the warming of the heart at social gatherings was going to be sufficient to overcome the alcoholic's obsession. Taking stock at the year's end, we find that this school of thought has few survivors, for the bottled heat treatment has persuaded them that we must find some sort of spiritual basis for living, else we die. One recovering alcoholic said, I prayed every day that God would take away my thirst for drink. And then every morning I would wake up, and the first thing I would think about was Jack Daniel's whiskey. He said, but then I realized one day that it was my craving for that that led me to pray every day. He said, my weakness drives me to God. Let me ask you something. What is it that drives you to God? Is it your strength? Your togetherness, or is it your weakness and your true need for him? Well, let me just make a suggestion. That radical honesty, radical equality, and radical dependence on each other and God might be some healthy marks for us to follow here as a church community. You know, for years, honesty was not allowed in the church. If you struggled with a certain sin, you either had to conceal it or pay for it before you entered into the holy sanctuary. But let me tell you that church should be a grace-filled place where honesty is rewarded, not punished. Radical equality. We need to recognize that we all are equal and each of us is in need of a savior as much as the people sitting in the pew in front of you and behind you. You know, I've heard from both young and old people they say, yes, I, I will go to church as soon as I have a few things in my life all together. As if to say that all of us here have it all together. And then they come to church and they see very quickly we don't have it all together and they wonder what we're doing here. 
but that is not the way church works. We will never have it all together. In fact, maybe that's why we're here. We've all heard the phrase that the church is not meant to be a hotel for saints, but a hospital for sinners, and I would like to suggest that it's also meant to be a recovery group for sin addicts such as you and me. And we need to be radically dependent upon each other. When approached with the revolutionary idea that somebody wants to be spiritual, but not religious, which typically is a way of saying they don't want to be part of organized religion, I frankly say to them that they are missing out one of the best parts of being a Christian. And that is that one special hour each week when we can come together here as fellow sojourners on this journey of faith and encourage each other and say, listen, I know. My faith is being tested as well. I'm having a hard time too. But what do you say we go through it together? Radical dependence. And that is why we here at Cala Mesa need to be ready and willing to invite and welcome in all kinds of people to this church because we never know exactly what they've been going through. I mentioned George earlier, the Christian who's been a part of AA for a long time. He said that when he first stumbled into a meeting on a cold, bitter night 20 years ago, a group of total strangers welcomed him with open arms and told him to keep coming back. George had hit bottom. His life was a mess, and since nobody else was telling him that in those days, he accepted the invitation. He says that he sometimes gets a different response at church. Something like, aren't you done with that yet? He says, I realize that for the rest of my life, I can go to AA meetings and nobody will ask me, aren't you done with that yet? Aren't you through with talking about that alcoholism? They will just say, keep coming back, George. We're glad you made it here. And I first began studying this community a while back and I felt very moved by it. But then something hit me. I realized how strange it was to suggest I understood these people if I wasn't willing to be with them. And so I decided to attend an AA meeting for the first time. Now, some people asked me after the first service if I'm an alcoholic. I'm not. But many of these meetings uh, are open. You do not have to be an alcoholic to attend. And so I went and I attended a meeting, and I was nervous about it. Pulled up to the shabby motel, walked into this room, nervous that there'd be just a handful of people there in one very awkward situation. But when I walked in, right at 6 o'clock on the dot, that room was already packed with 30 people. And by the end of the meeting, there were 50 people in there. And I will just tell you that what I experienced in that hour was one of the most Christ-filled hours of my life. I immediately noticed that there was every kind of person there, young and old, rich and poor, male and female, and there was no pretense necessary among them. I noticed that about half of them were drinking coffee at six in the evening. And then I noticed some themes that came up as people started to speak. Themes like the need to humble oneself. Themes like the dangers of pride. Themes like not needing to be the center of attention. And the theme of a dependence upon God, because those 50 people made it very clear 
but they could not overcome their struggles without his help. Whenever somebody would share, they would make sure to support each other. And so somebody would start out, they'd say, hi, I'm Jerry, I'm an alcoholic, and they would all scream back, hi, Jerry! Not in a way as if to mock that traditional greeting that we're all familiar with, but as if they truly longed to offer support to Jerry through their words. And then as soon as somebody's testimony ended, just roars of applause would break out every time. And then I noticed something else. AA is a completely self-supporting institution, and so they pass an offering plate around. And when that plate went around, people enthusiastically pulled their wallets out, grabbed every dollar bill they had, and threw it in there with a smile on their face. And I just have to say that as a pastor, I've never seen that before. (laughs) But the most touching testimony for me was when a man named Mike spoke up. Mike shared with us how alcohol had taken everything from him. He said that when his child was born, he was too intoxicated to drive to the hospital, so somebody had to drive him there. And while at the hospital, he was too belligerent and was removed. He said that in the past eight years, he had been to countless funerals of friends whose lifestyles, which were very similar to his, cost them everything. He said, alcohol has cost me my home, it's cost me my job, it's cost me my friends, my wife, and my kids. But I want to show you something, he said. And he reached into his pocket, pulled out a cell phone with a picture on it. He said, everybody look at this. And we all crowded around to look. He said, this is me and my now teenage daughter, arm in arm, at a restaurant this week. He said, this wasn't easy, and this was not quick. It took a lot of time, but it's worth it. He said, all you new guys here, and then he looked right at me, and I put my head down. (laughs) (laughs) He said, all you new guys, stick with this program because it's worth it. Roars of applause, just roars of applause. And I realized that from his testimony, another life had been changed. So what about here? What about you guys? What about the followers of Jesus? Radical honesty? Radical equality? Radical dependence? think we could do that? Hello, church. Hi, my name is Aaron. I struggle with sin. I struggle with pride. I struggle with lust. I struggle with self-centeredness. There are times that I'm getting ready for church And I'm more worried about which tie I'm going to wear than how I'm going to worship God that day. There are times that I find more security in what sits in my savings account than in what God tells me again and again in Scripture. 
And if I can be honest with you, there are times that I secretly hope that Jesus waits just a little bit longer to come until I can accomplish everything I want to in my life, and then he can arrive. I'm weak, you guys. And I can't overcome it by myself. But let me tell you something. I need radical honesty. I need radical equality. I need radical dependence upon you and upon God. But I'm smiling today. Do you know why? Because though I am weak, Jesus gives me strength. And furthermore, I am smiling because I know that despite these weaknesses, these sins, these struggles, I know that I've been saved by Jesus and there is nothing in this world that will ever change that. Amen. Before we go, please bow your heads for prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for speaking to our hearts through the words of Pastor Aaron. Continue to lead and guide us through your Holy Spirit. And as we leave this place, just let it stay with us that all we need is in you. Thank you. Amen.